This morning, I wanted to uh, talk with you a little bit about something I could have called the Sermon Therefore, but I didn't know if that would communicate very much to you. But there's a reason why the word therefore is very important in the writings of Paul. So would you open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4, and if you're in our book link, uh, one of our Bibles, it's page 815. Ephesians chapter 4, there's something unique about that. Looking Now, I'm going to share with you a couple passages here this morning. First, as, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of calling that you have received. Now, if you read it in the King James Version, it will say, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation or the calling within which you are called. That word, therefore, is an incredibly important word found in the writings of Paul. For we often come across it. It's it's a very simple word, but it's a word that shows a time of, I've said all this now, and therefore the conclusion of it is to do this. You've heard this argument, and now this is to go and how you're going to take the action about it. So Paul's fragmented argument and his frequent argument that he makes in his Bible, in his writings, follows that pattern. He shares out with you his experience, his argument, and then he said, okay, now, therefore, your actions should follow that and go forward. So an example is he always places grace first. Grace always comes before he asks you to do anything. Which is an interesting example that we can find. We could look, and you don't have to look, but you just take this and for the grain of salt it is. But in the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 11, I don't know why that didn't go to 11, but in chapter 11, he lays out the great grace argument theology in those first chapters. But then he goes on and he lays that out, the detail of grace. But in chapter 12, he goes, I therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And he goes on and on. So I, therefore, I gather that and I move forward in that process from there. So you only, if you look at this, only after the story of grace has been told, by grace have you been saved, does Paul venture into voice um, obligations of a response. Does he then go? So he tells you about the great grace of Christ. He lays that framework, and he goes, therefore, because of the great framework of that, that great thing, therefore, I now share with you the response that we should have to that grace. It is an incredible thing that he does. and So God's actions, God's saving actions, always precede a response from us in obedience. God acts first. He saves First, and then he calls us to a response, which is quite opposite the way we normally think. So if you remember the story in the Old Testament of the burning bush, if you recall, Israel was in in bondage in Egypt. And um, because of a minor incident of Moses killing an Egyptian, he had to flee. And he fled out into the wilderness and while he was out there tending sheep for 40 years, all of a sudden this bush started burning. Are you familiar with this story of the burning bush? And so he, the Lord spoke to him in that bush and he told him to go back and he'd go back. And so in organizing that, he got the people and after the plagues, he led the people out across the Red Sea. Paul calls it their baptism. Isn't that interesting? 
He calls it their baptism. They went across the Red Sea. And as they went across the Red Sea into freedom to be God's people, then is when he presented to them the Ten Commandments. You see, his great action of grace in saving them, pulling them out, that saving grace of God, first came and then he said, as my children, as you are willing to be a follower of me, this is what follows and this is what part. Now, I need to get, I need to give you a warning here because, you know, sermons can be dangerous. So I need to give you a warning. And that is that teaching, the teaching of grace in the Bible is hard for men to take. Women evidently do okay with it. But for men, the teaching of grace in the Bible is hard for men to take. It assaults our human pride at its very root. It assaults us. Men do not want to think of themselves as helpless and in need of salvation before they have earned merit and praise. You see, they want salvation as a prize, not as a gift. Particularly in our Western culture. They want to earn it. And it has been a struggle. So justification by faith, by a mere confession of unworthiness, such as the publican expressed in his cry for mercy, is a shock to the Pharisee's pride. Remember the story of the publican? He went in to pray and the Pharisee was there. Jesus tells the story. And they went up to the temple to pray, and as they were praying, the Pharisee was speaking out loud with his hand raised to heaven, and he saw the publican over there who was crying out of mercy, hiding himself because he was humbled himself before God, knew he was an unworthy man. But the Pharisee had his hands raised up, and he said, I thank God that I'm not like that publican over there. There was kind of a pride in that. I'm Boy, thank you, God, I'm not like that. So that is happen, ha- happens all the time. Martin Luther, the reason Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in 1517 was because he saw the emergence of grace that preceded works. He saw the importance that we are saved by grace and not by works. When the whole church at that time was living on a works-oriented basis. And you go to Roman Catholicism today, well, we're having a class coming up on the 13th of September, Roman Understanding Roman Catholic Theology. It's important for us to understand. It'll be on Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, for you to come and I will share with you because most people, most people, even in church people, do not understand what Roman Catholic theology is about and therefore they go on spouting and saying things that aren't true about it. So you come on, we'll help you out. But here was Roman Catholic theology is based on a works merit type of system because it's what we do it's how we live it's how we do our lives it's how we run about francis schaefer the late francis schaefer then would would conclude and he said well then how shall we live after the after the presentation of the grace then how shall we live he picked up this very same idea that paul was making when paul went in and so now let's go back to ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians back chapter 4. Or we could say, therefore. Here comes the great therefore moment. We're going to make that therefore. So he goes back and he says to us, be completely humble. 
and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another's love. Humble Christians, you know, he directs his warfare first against the evil in his own heart. See, that's what the publican did. He saw within himself he needed grace. A humble Christian directs the warfare, not at others, but first against his own evil heart. Checking that out first about that. Verse 3, make every effort to keep unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That word, the spirit there, we could interpret and say that that also meant with Christ. So the church has these moments, doesn't it? The church has these moments. We have the church business meetings, and I don't know if you've ever been to one. Uh, they can be quite events. Sometimes at churches, they're called Saturday night fights. And they can be really ugly and can be really disturbing. We try to avoid We don't have any of those here. But that is an, I found this, and I, I reminded the board of this. I put this on the bottom of their notes there. And I put on there, harmony is produced in ministry when everyone seeks to be a servant. When everyone seeks to be a servant, then there's no pride, not trying to gain, not trying to get ahead of anyone. You're to be a servant. I mean, how can I help you? I love that. I thought that was great. Verse 4. So there is one body, And one spirit, that spirit of Christ, the Christ in his church is what they're talking about. So there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, ladies, one God, the Father of us all, who is over all and through all and all. So we find in that particular passage that there are seven mentions of what is one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God or Father overall. That particular phrasing that I want to share with us that as a church family, as Christian believers, that we are all in unity with Christ. There's a oneness with him. A oneness with Christ. Unity, we call it. That's what Paul called it. Unity. A unity is we're in one purpose. We have one goal. We have one thing to go. Sometimes we get in arguments. I was reading a book called Crucial Conversations. I've never read that book. It talked about what do you do when you disagree with someone. And the concept of it is you're having these disagreements with someone. But if you start backing up and backing up and going back, Almost always, those disagreements end with a single goal. For example, we might be arguing or having a friendly discussion, as sometimes we call it, with red faces and try to avoid name-calling. But we're having a discussion, having that discussion, and, and if we reach back, we all have basically at the beginning of the scene, we both want to have basically the same thing we want to draw others to Christ. But we have different methods of going. And so if we back up and go back, we find that we are unified, even though we have different methods, different ways. It's quite an interesting concept. So unity um, has often been misunderstood as uniformity, that we all have to be the same, have to think the same. There's a danger in that. Have you ever heard of the concept called groupthink? 
groupthink. Groupthink is uh, interesting. During the Vietnam War, the uh, Lyndon Johnson, when he bring his cabinet together, they uh, kept perpetuating the war on on what they're going to do with a crisis, and nobody really spoke up and said much about it because they'd all kind of had group think of this is what we're supposed to do, this is what we're supposed to do and have, and so they would all have this, and later as they reevaluated, said, well, what happened is there was no real critical thinking about it, about what to do, because we were all locked in together in group think. The danger of group think is therefore you don't have people coming up and saying something else that might lead you or broaden or help you have a deeper understanding. You know, if everybody would just agree with me, we wouldn't have any problems. But it would be really boring, wouldn't it? I mean, really. So over the years, I've had to learn that I don't want group think in my church. I want people to be able to feel free they can express their opinion and express what they're thinking because the Spirit of God may be leading through them and I need to listen. And over the years, I found that to be true. To be listening to what's being said. Even though the part of it is not acceptable, there may be a little part that we need to hear. Going back to, yeah, we agree with that. And so you can pick up parts. I had a gentleman who was very upset with me because he gave us an idea of what he wanted to do. And and uh, we didn't do all of it. We did about 80% of what he wanted. And he was upset because we didn't do the other 20%. Well, the group came together and said, well, that, that last 20% isn't going to work, but we can make the rest go. And happened. Group think. So, back to verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appropriated it. It's grace that he has given to us. This, by this way, it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, that's when he ascended, and gave gifts to his people. I mean, drawing from Psalms uh, 68. What does the, the ascend, he ascended mean, he, Paul goes on, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions where we live. He, uh, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. And I see we have teachers over here gave the teachers to equip his people for the works of what? Service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge, that one concept, of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of God and the fullness of him, then we are no longer uh, to be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become and never respect the mature body of him who has the head and that is the church. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And what Paul is saying, that requires all of us to bring our gifts and talents and put them to work. Because the church 
is stronger and more effective when we all participate. I believe, and over the years I've seen it true, that within the church family, God has placed all the gifts he needs to use to advance his cause. They are in the people, inspired by his spirit. However, if that particular member is AWOL, absent without leave, and isn't bringing their gifts to help, then that particular gift that is needed is not there, including yours truly. It is a way to go. You know, we go through life stages and transitions. I've noticed that as I've now passed 40. I am, I'm past 40. As I, uh, as I got past 40, I've noticed that life has transitioned different for me. I see things differently, and I see myself differently, and I see my role differently, and, and I, hopefully it's maturing to see those things happening and changing. And we go through these transitions, no longer a child, no longer particularly a teenager, no longer, oh, I still think of myself as a young man, but, In any fashion, we go through these transitions in life. Churches go through transitions as well. And it's those life transitions that churches go through. Some die and close. Other churches take off and they flourish. Some are stronger and last longer, while others don't. It's interesting, the life transitions of a church family, depending on the community, depending on the gifts that are there. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that we, we are now in our own transition. We are moving forward in an area we have not gone before. Things are happening here. Frameworks are being laid. Things are happening here that will take us into the future, including as you came and saw the drawings up there for our building that we want. The purpose of the building is to meet the needs of the community. That's the purpose of the building. It's not so we can be more comfortable. It is so that we can meet the needs of our community. Where Danielle talked to you about a ministry fair earlier, that ministry fair was designed to help you get an opportunity to put your talents back online and to help us move forward. An example of that, as she mentioned, was on our community lunch on September the 8th. We moved it one week later than normal, got it off of Labor Day weekend, but one week later, second Sabbath of the month, we would like to open our doors. We'd like to invite the community to come in and have lunch with us. We did that at breakfast on the first Sunday of the month, and people from the community come and eat breakfast with us. It's a growing number each time new people. So we'd like to open our doors. If we're going to eat together, why don't we have the community come and eat with us? Makes sense, doesn't it, to you? Well, Martine here thinks, well, we could do more than that. Martine suggested, well, why don't we have a community activity right after that? Why couldn't we go out and do stuff and help our community in some form? So, well, that's a brilliant idea. So if the community comes in, why don't we go out and help the community right afterwards? So we're going to try that. 
See how that works. Make that happen. See, we are in tradition, transition, excuse me, because what's happening is we want to be the church of the open door. We want people to feel welcome, that they can come and be part and work together and to help them. So everyone takes and participates. Everyone has a part they can share together. Everyone can help with our events together. And then we can praise and worship God together. Well, today is a great event because it marks a baptism that happened. Many more are coming. Many more are coming. But the reality is that there are people, people in our community, who by this time next year will be sitting here with us, who know nothing about us now. Think of that. There are people in our community that will be coming and joining us, sitting where you are, preparing to meet Jesus Christ, to be baptized, to follow Jesus, who now are outside, have no idea that we even exist. Because the church is going out the door. I've asked to have, um, asked Kendall to make a, a sign up over there. He's going to work on getting a sign up over the door. And it's going to say, you are now entering the mission field when you go out the door. That's where the mission is, out the door. We as a church family must be continually focused outward, continually involved with our community, because that's our work. If we don't, who will? We need to. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the testimony of these two young ladies who went into the water and were baptized to give their, give their lives to you. Bless them as they grow and continue to follow you. You know their path. You know where they're going. Bless them. Be with them. Protect them. Guide them. Strengthen them. But we as a church family need to follow their example as well. And we need to go into the community and we need to be involved in the world around us. Lord, I ask that you will help us. Show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen.